Let's return to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we have come across some of Jesus' most enigmatic language. After feeding the 5,000 and walking across the water, Jesus finds himself embroiled in a controversy. And his dialogue with the Jews will turn into a monologue. And Jesus will call himself the bread of life, much to the consternation of his hearers. And Jesus knows the Jews do not understand him because their motives are wrong. In verse 26, he declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're coming to fill their bellies, but do they embrace Jesus' true identity? Jesus' agenda was not to temporarily satisfy people with bread. Rather, his mission is spelled out in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Unfortunately, the crowds were more interested in miracles than Jesus' true identity. Verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? The crowds want another sign. But Jesus refuses. Rather, he insists again that he is the true bread and that it was his father, not Moses, who provided manna out in the wilderness. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So will the people embrace Jesus as the bread of life? Well, verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. That may sound like a sincere request, but as the passage proceeds, it's anything but. In verse 35, Jesus reiterates, I am the bread of life. And then in verse 36, he emphasizes their unbelief. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now in verse 37, Jesus emphasizes that even though people must come to Jesus in faith, the Father is actually involved in their salvation. In fact, Jesus prioritizes the Father's initiative in giving people to Christ. Look at the text, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, All of that is review from last week. So we come now to our text beginning with verse 41. And here are two paragraphs expanding on the previous discussion. So let's read down through both of them. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Second paragraph. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, if you're looking at an ESV, the paragraph divisions here are really quite helpful. Verse 41 begins a paragraph, as does verse 52. Both verses 41 and 52 emphasize the Jews' misunderstanding. In verse 41, the Jews grumble among themselves because of Jesus' statement, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 52, they argue among themselves because of Jesus' statement that he would give them his flesh to eat. Now, each paragraph also contains Jesus' answer to the Jews. So in verse 43, for instance, we read, Jesus answered them. And in verse 53, we read, Jesus said to them. So that really is the framework for our passage. Two paragraphs. And let's work through each one in turn, and we'll work relatively quickly through the first. In the first paragraph, the Jews balk at Jesus' statement in verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And the resistance centered not so much on Jesus' metaphor of bread, but on the last two words of a statement from heaven. And that becomes clear in verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So the Jews essentially said, We know who this Jesus is. He is the son of Joseph and Mary. We know them. 
We know his parents. How can he say he came down from heaven? In other words, the Jews have not yet embraced his virginal conception nor his pre-existence. They do not believe that Jesus actually came to us from God the Father in heaven. So how does Jesus respond? Well, once again, he points to the Father's initiative in verse 44 in drawing people to the truths he reveals. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, back in 37, Jesus emphasized the Father's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. We discussed that last week. Here, Jesus focuses our attention on divine sovereignty. Without the Father drawing people, they will not come. Now, Jesus' statement should not induce fear in the believer, all right, but confidence that we are not alone in our efforts to draw people to Christ. It really is the Father who draws people ultimately. And the Father has every intention of giving to His Son people to raise up at the last day. Now, verse 45 will clarify how God the Father then draws people. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught. That's how the Father draws. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned, that is, he's been taught, from the Father comes to me. Well, Jesus here really is summarizing an idea that really is found throughout the Old Testament prophets. But it really was expressed very clearly in Isaiah 54 and verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. That's the emphasis. The Father does indeed have a ministry of drawing people to Jesus through teaching The Father draws people through illumination of their minds, through insight, through instruction, through His Word. And God indeed is in the business of drawing people to Himself through the revelation of Himself. God, friends, wants people to know Him. He really does. So again, don't read this section negatively, trying to figure out whom God is not drawing. Read it the way that Jesus intended. God wants people to discover Him. Now, Jesus hastens to clarify in verse 46 that no one except Himself has actually seen God. Not that anyone has seen the Father, He says, except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. And if that's true, that explains why it's so important to actually believe on Jesus as the revelation of God. So verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And would you notice again, as we did last week, that even while emphasizing God's sovereignty and salvation, God drawing people, Jesus does not circumvent a person's obligation to believe. Well, look at the text. Whoever. So friend, whoever you are, What's your job? Believe. Are you wondering whether God might be drawing you 
Do you have a desire to come to Christ? Well, what do you do? You believe. That is your responsibility. Go ahead and believe. Your job is not to draw people to the Father. God does that. Your obligation is simply to believe. And if you believe, well, then guess what? God the Father drew you. So once again, as we discovered last week, Jesus just harmonizes the themes of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Look back at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So am I a believer because the Father gave me to Jesus? Yes, of course. And will Jesus cast me out or anyone out if I come to him for salvation? Never. Totally impossible. He cannot do that. So, at this point, after reiterating how people come to him, Jesus once again returns to the issue of his identity as the bread of life. And that's in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Are you getting the sense that Jesus just keeps coming back over and over and over again and hammering the same theme? Notice how often he keeps referring to himself as bread. Verse 32, he calls himself true bread from heaven. Verse 33, the bread of God. Verse 35, the bread of life. Verse 41, the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, the bread of life. Verse 50, the bread that comes down from heaven. And verse 51, the living bread that came down from heaven. So why does Jesus just keep on insisting that he is the bread of life? Well, we certainly get a clue in verses 49 and 50. Here's the clue. The fathers ate manna and died. Every last one of those wilderness wanderers ate that manna, that miraculous manna, and died. No exceptions. Moses himself ate the manna and died. However, Jesus in verse 50 speaks of a bread that you eat and you don't die. That's a tremendous clue. Now, our initial thought is to assume that Jesus must be using some sort of metaphor to point to a deeper spiritual reality. Jesus is some sort of spiritual bread, right? Right? Well, perhaps, but notice the last clause of verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If Jesus is using a metaphor, which he is, 
All right? He's not done pushing that metaphor to its limits. Did the Jews see this coming? Did they understand what he really meant? The bread is his flesh? Again, if this is a metaphor, Jesus is just going to really just push it to its limits. So what exactly then is the bread of life? That is the question that he is now going to address in the second paragraph. All right? So the second paragraph also begins with the Jews just balking at Jesus' statement. Arguing among themselves, they exclaim in verse 52, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking in very literal terms. That sounds like cannibalism. Certainly, Jesus, Jesus can't be talking about his actual flesh. Well, how, how does Jesus then respond? Does he respond, oh, you silly Jews, don't you just grasp my metaphor? Actually, no, not at all. Jesus responds with words that sound, frankly, even more cannibalistic. They really do. Now, let's try to hear Jesus' words this morning the way the Jews would have heard them in the first century. All right? Let's just divorce our knowledge of the cross and communion from this scene. Those are still in the future. Imagine that you're a Jew and you're looking for a Messiah to come and to rescue Israel from her Roman oppressors. Perhaps Jesus is the Messiah. After all, he performs extraordinary miracles. I mean, he feeds like 5,000 people miraculously. However, he refuses to duplicate the miracle or to provide daily manna. I mean, Moses did it, they thought. Why doesn't Jesus do it? Instead, he keeps calling himself the true bread, the bread of God, the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. So what does he mean? That's the context. And in that context, how would you interpret verse 53 and following? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Well, what on earth is Jesus saying? If you just bristle at that language, knowing what you know of the cross and communion, how do you think the Jews would have responded? Well, to really get at what Jesus means, we need to think about food. And I have, on previous occasions, suggested that we all need a good theology of food. 
fact, I think on two previous occasions I have talked about food. And I want to return to some of that discussion today. And also to some previous discussion I've had with you all about the matter of common grace. I want to pull together some threads from, frankly, some previous sermons to really make sense of this passage. All right? And hopefully we can leave here today really understanding this rather challenging paragraph. Part of our difficulty in understanding Jesus stems from the fact that despite having abundant medical and nutritional knowledge about food in our modern Western world, we tend to be the most ignorant people in history regarding food. That is to say, we know all about calories, proteins, carbohydrates. We've nevertheless bought into the two two mistaken notions of convenient food and cheap food. And if we'll take a moment and really evaluate these mistaken notions, the passage will make a great deal of sense to us. The fact is, food is not convenient. We are so far removed from the agricultural process, thanks to the John Deere, the diesel engine, refrigeration, the grocery store, We hardly stop to think about where our food actually comes from. It doesn't come from the grocery store or the restaurant. The existence of a simple loaf of bread on our table presupposes an extraordinary preparation. The curse that Joseph read about this morning must be overcome. The land must be cleared of stubborn roots and persistent thorns and thistles. God curses both the ground and its produce. Those early farmers were forced to claw at the ground with primitive tools. Ever ask yourself the question, what came first, the farmer or the tool? <laughs> How does one dig for iron ore to smelt it into a shovel unless he first has a shovel to dig for the ore? To increase productivity, the strength of the stubborn ox must be harnessed to pull the plow, cutting a furrow into the ground. In modern times, a thousand workers labor against the clock to produce a tractor or to drill its energy from fossil fuels somewhere on the planet's surface. The The regenerative powers of the earth must be painstakingly cultivated through the production of organic soil, replete with bacteria and microorganisms, which are all necessary for our foods. God, image-bearing farmers must domesticate through multiple iterations productive seeds to be sown down into the earth. In fact, the crops that we take for granted were genetically engineered. Did you know this? They are genetically engineered, in some cases, through hundreds or thousands of plant cycles by ancient farmers who figured out how to turn weeds back into grocery products. Image-bearing engineers diverted the course of rivers and captured the rain, diverting the water of life into the placenta of soil encircling the seed. The farmer patiently labors against the encroachment of weeds while the life-giving energy of the sun and photosynthesis yield a produce for the harvest. The grain then must be harvested and transformed to the flour and the flour and the dough through the toilsome labor of grinders in the mill. The dough is then placed into an oven built from raw materials that miners somewhere have quarried from the earth. 
In our time, the bread then must be transported to your local grocery store and made available for your purchase. But actually, this is no easy task. Someone must drill into the earth and drain the energizing fuels buried beneath the surface of the earth in the Middle East or somewhere on the globe, and then transport them over an ocean, refine them into a combustible gasoline that can be burned in the engine of a truck that transports the bread to your store. And think about that truck. That truck is a wonderful symphony of thousands of parts that have been harvested from all over the globe. Did you think about that last time you drove past a great big truck driving down the road? It's a beautiful thing to consider, actually. My aunt and uncle were truckers. <laughs> Friends, food is actually anything but convenient, and I'm actually oversimplifying the process. The very simple act of just slicing into a piece of bread presupposes an abundantly supplied creation designed by an all-wise creator equipped with extraordinary image bearers who daily ply their trays to keep us alive. The theological term for all this is common grace. Common grace. And I think we need to give a whole lot more attention to the theme of common grace because it's all around us. When Noah stepped off the ark into a post-apocalyptic world, God promised the maintenance of seed time and a harvest for as long as the world endures. And friends, right now we live under the generosity of the Noahic covenant. We do. We live under the generosity of that beautiful covenant. Seed time and harvest, friends, imply not only human industry and ingenuity, but the Creator's goodness. Seed time and harvest. The planting of the seeds by the farmer, the time of harvest, both sent to us by God. So the next time you drive across the Great Plains and you witness those monstrous tractors tilling up the earth, those enormous combines spinning their blades through endless fields of wheat, those diesel engines hauling truckloads of wheat to grain elevators, those enormous machines just hurling down the tracks, tugging loads of grain to major cities. Friends, that is all, that is all God's common grace. That is all God's goodness to people. Norman Wurzba, who was a theologian and a chef, writes, Whenever people come to the table, they demonstrate with the unmistakable evidence of their stomachs that they are not self-subsisting gods. They are finite and mortal creatures dependent on God's many good gifts. Sunlight, photosynthesis, decomposition, soil fertility, water, bees and butterflies, chickens, sheep, cows, gardeners, farmers, cooks, strangers and friends. Eating reminds us that we participate in a grace-saturated world. But how often do we come to the table betraying exactly the ingratitude that Jesus condemns in verse 26? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. With bellies full of loaves and fish, the Jews rejected the God behind the miracle. With bellies full of manna, the Hebrews fell down and worshipped a golden calf. And across our country today, people with their bellies full of convenient food 
and large temples to sports will never visit a church to worship. But friends, food is not convenient. It's a wonderful gift delivered by God's common grace to our tables three times a day. And secondly, food is not cheap. I am not talking about our current inflation, but it is true that groceries are going up and up and up. My wife keeps telling me this. All right, But the fact is, we do live in a world subsequent to the fall where every living creature must eat in order to survive. We read about the fall this morning. And for us to eat, something else must die. Wurzba writes, Death is not simply the cessation of life, but its precondition. Let that, let that sink in. Death is not the cessation of life, but its precondition. This is the terrible dilemma of the fall. Only death can sustain life. Think of that. Since the fall, only death can sustain life. You would not regard meat as cheap if you had to slit the throat and drain the blood of God's creation. Three times daily we'd break the body and shed the blood of God's creation in our stoves, but we don't really think about it. And that's because our problem is that we live so remotely from the process of slaying God's creation that we never see the fish hauled up, hauled up from the sea, writhing for oxygen. We never hear the bleeding sheep or the bellowing cattle as they are hurtled into the slaughterhouse. But if we lived in an agricultural society like most societies throughout world history, we we would have a much more profound appreciation for the mystery of death That sustains all life since the fall. To kill is to live. To die is to nurture life. And this again is the horrible, horrible dilemma of the fall. God sacrifices His creations in our ovens to sustain our lives for another day. And quite literally, the blood of God's animals has been shed every day since the fall to sustain God's rebellious sons on this planet. However, the eternalization of our human life is neither convenient nor cheap. To sustain human life for a day, you've got the slot of the creation, but to sustain it for eternity, what must you do? You must slaughter the Creator. You have to break His body open and drain His blood and plant His body into the womb of the earth. In John 12, Jesus will say, For wheat to spring from the soil, a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. He says this before he goes to his cross. Only death can bring forth life. And only the death of the Creator can bring forth life for a whole new creation. Now let's pull all of this together. Common grace is anything but convenient and anything but cheap. And friends, redeeming grace is the most valuable gift in the universe. If common grace is the sacrifice of the creation, redeeming grace is the sacrifice of the Creator. If common grace is the loaves and fish, redeeming grace is the body of Jesus Christ. Look very closely at the words of verse 53. 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. If common grace is the loaves and fish, redeeming grace is the body of Jesus Christ. The internalization of food energizes our life. But Jesus is not talking about mere temporary life. Verse 54 is clear. He is speaking of eternal life. The sacrifice of the creation yields life, but only the sacrifice of the Creator yields eternal life. And that's why Jesus just keeps on insisting He is the bread of life. He is the bread out of heaven. Earthly bread cannot sustain forever. The manna of heaven must descend upon us. And Jesus makes that point unmistakably clear in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Everyone who ate that manna died. But wasn't the manna given to keep them alive? Yes, but it was never intended as an eternal life source. The manna, friends, the manna like the whole Old Testament pointed like an arrow beyond itself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ of the New Testament, to the bread of heaven that sustains life forever. That's what the whole Old Testament was pointing straight to Jesus. So in that context, let's do one more thing this morning. And let's follow the Old Testament arrow right beyond our passage. We've also done this on a previous occasion, but I want to talk about Passover. And I want to do that because of verse 4. If you look back at verse 4, John gave us a unique piece of information not found in the synoptics. John says, now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Likewise, the whole discourse on bread that we just read is unique to John's gospel. So certainly, John wants us to connect Passover, right, with the bread of life discourse. These two are connected. He brings those two together in chapter 6. So what exactly is the relationship Well, every Passover, a Jewish family brought a spotless sacrificial lamb to the temple for slaughter. Josephus tells us in the time of Christ, there were some 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed. 600 priests in the temple drained a quarter of a million gallons of blood into large basins. The priest then splashed that river of blood against the base of the altar where it pooled and gullied and drained off the temple mount. The blood mingled with the water flowing from the Enrogal Spring which coursed its way through the Kidron Valley, this deep ravine which ran right up the side of the temple mount like a horrible scar in the landscape of the temple. The lamb then drained of its blood was splayed on two lengths of wood. Those two lengths of wood form the shape of a cross. One pinned the shoulders of the lamb. A second ran the length of the spine. 
The lambs were then roasted in the temple altars and carried to homes for Passover, where they had to be completely consumed. Well, Jesus observed a Passover meal in Jerusalem on the eve of his crucifixion. But he suddenly transformed that whole meal in five significant ways. First, Jesus reoriented the meaning of the meal to himself. He did not recite the history of the Exodus as the Father typically did, or the most distinguished male typically did. He didn't look backwards to the Exodus at all. In fact, he looked forward to drinking the new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus spoke of the coming Holy Spirit and the dawn of a whole new age in the history of redemption. He transformed the whole meal. Secondly, Jesus reoriented the meaning of the bread. The unleavened Passover bread traditionally symbolized the hasty exodus of the Hebrews right out of Egypt. But Jesus suddenly says, take, eat, this is my body. That would have sounded scandalous to the Jews and to any culture that detests cannibalism. But Jesus' point was this, salvation is neither convenient nor cheap. The Creator must be slain. And third, Jesus reoriented the meaning of the cup. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Even while he drank the blood of thousands of lambs drained off the Temple Mount, the priest took a knife, and with a quick, muscular blow, he punctuated the heart of the lamb. The blood drained. In mere moments, Jesus would descend from the upper room into the scar of Kidron, where the blood and the water flowed from that great scar in the temple side. And as Jesus descended into the dark Kidron, he cited Zechariah's prophecy, Strike the shepherd. And Zechariah told us, On that day there shall be a fountain opened to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Puncture the heart of the shepherd and a new stream of blood and water would flow from the temple scar. And fourthly, Jesus suddenly spoke of a whole new covenant. Every Jew understood the covenant God made at Sinai, delivering the nation at the first Passover. But Jesus suddenly speaks of a whole new covenant in His blood. And fifthly, Jesus left the final Passover. Jesus left the final Passover table incomplete. Jewish readers accustomed to the Passover meal would read Matthew twenty-six and verse thirty with surprise. It says, "And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." Well, something's wrong. The Passover always concluded by the consuming of the fourth cup of wine. Jesus left after singing the final Hallel, Psalm 118. So why does he leave the final Passover eerily incomplete? Or did he? Follow Jesus from the upper room. He passes through the Kidron, his feet mingling with the blood of thousands of lambs. 
He prays in the garden. Judas betrays him. He stands trial. A charge is brought. This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus is driven to his cross. The executioners offer him wine. He refuses it. The lamb is crucified. A length of wood splayed across his shoulders. A second running the length of his spine. People pass beneath that cross mocking him. You who are about to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And darkness falls for three long agonizing hours. And Jesus, knowing that the Scriptures were now fulfilled, in complete mastery over every detail, says, I thirst. Wine is brought. And Jesus drank the fourth cup. Jesus bowed His head. And the final Passover ended. Jesus had drained of the dregs the wrath of Almighty God. And the old Passover was done. At that moment, the temple veil split apart, exposing to the world Jerusalem's darkest secret. The Holy of Holies was empty. The temple's foundations rumbled with an earthquake, and God never again required a sacrifice on its altars. Not another drop of animal blood ever need stain the garments of another priest. No river of blood draining from into the Kidron would ever again be required. The final Passover ended. And at that moment, a soldier pierced the side of the temple and opened a new fountain flowing with blood and water. Strike the shepherd, Zechariah predicted. And on that day, there shall be a fountain open to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You for this truly delightful passage. And I pray, Lord, that as we daily partake of the food that You place in our tables, that we would look to Christ, the Creator who was sacrificed, to sustain our lives, Lord, not for a day, not for an hour, but, Lord, for all of eternity. We confess Christ as the true bread who came down from heaven. We take just a moment in the quietness of the hour. If you're a believer here, just re-confess to God your belief in His Son, your embrace of Him as the true bread of life. And if you're an unbeliever, would you seriously contemplate whether the Father might be drawing you, drawing you? And if that's the case, what the Bible says is, whoever you are, you come. Father, we give you thanks again for Christ. We thank you for the atonement that he made. 
And for the resurrection that he experienced, and for the new life that we are guaranteed through him, we pray for anyone here today who might not as yet have embraced Christ, that they would indeed come, that you would draw that person, draw that person, Lord. If you are drawing him, we pray that even today might be the day of his or her salvation. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.